every parent wants what is best for their family, right? And a lot of those issues stem also from this very strong desire of protection, which sounds a bit weird because then you end up heading your wife to actually protect her. But it's part of the norm, right? It's how me as a man, I can protect the honor of my family. None of those people are psychopaths, right? They're not beating people because it's they find it like pleasurable. Welcome to A Load of BS, A Practitioner's Guide to the BS Galaxy with me, Daniel Ross, for the fourth episode in my series of very practical podcasts on the life of behavioural scientists, their challenges, their work and how they think about the future of the industry. And I'm proud to say I'm doing all this in harness with my partner, BE Works, one of the very best behavioural science consultancies in the world, co-founded by Dan Ariely and Nina Mazar. BE Works is a multidisciplinary team of behavioural scientists and psychologists working on complex challenges across financial services to healthcare to sustainability, helping businesses reimagine a future in which individuals flourish and prosper. If you're interested in what they're up to, you might check out their BE Curious blog on their website at beworks.com or drop Warder and her team a line at info at beworks.com. Now, today I'm proud to welcome Clemence Quint, director and co-founder at Magenta Consulting, where she and her team use behavioural insights to make sustainable and scalable change in some of the poorest, war-torn and least developed parts of the world, seeking to maximise the effectiveness and efficiency of communications interventions in support of social impact, with projects focusing on civic education, governance and stabilisation, preventing violent extremism, counter-narcotics and women's empowerment in places like Nigeria, Tunisia, Afghanistan and Lebanon. Clemence holds a master's degree in international relations with a concentration in conflict and development studies from Sciences Po Lille. She speaks native French as well as conversational Spanish and basic Farsi and is currently learning Arabic as her next linguistic challenge. Today we talk about her behavioural science journey and the extraordinarily tough challenges changing family and gender-based social norms in the Middle East and Africa. Clemence is passionate and articulate in equal measure. This is eye-opening stuff. So please enjoy. Clemence, welcome to a load of BS with the practitioners. I'm really excited to talk to you today and learn about your behavioral science journey. Thanks. Very nice to be here. Great pleasure. Now, you've spent a career working in social impact organizations engaged in amazing projects from feeding the homeless in Marrakesh to food security in Beirut, developing communication strategies for aid and development in Afghanistan. And then you founded Magenta Consulting in 2017, which uses behavioral science principles to solve some of the most intractable social development challenges in the world. I think I'm only scratching the surface of all that you've done. So why don't you tell us how you got into behavioral science and then the genesis of Magenta? Right. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah, actually, it's an interesting, right? I, I forgot about my initial thoughts in Marrakesh. And I did get into behavioral science, I think, fairly randomly, probably out of uh, of curiosity. I think, as you, as you mentioned, I started yeah over 10 years ago now working in the international development sector. You know, I really wanted to make a difference in people's life. And I was quite driven and naive and young and really wanted to go see the world and do good deeds. So doing humanitarian work, it's quite great. Gratifying. It's a fairly immediate reward. You, you know, do an assessment, deliver food, 
people's life has changed immediately. And then I met someone uh, who became a very close friend and the co-founder of Magenta. She was working in Afghanistan at the time and so basically convinced me to uh, try to take a job there, which, you know, I thought, why not? And it was not humanitarian work. It was running strategic communications programs, which... I had no clue about, but I was good at running projects. So I said, why not? Let's do that. And then I found it absolutely fascinating. It's the first time I started realizing how media can shape and influence the way we think about issues. But then I also got quite curious very quickly about like how we could make all of the strategy communications programming much more effective, but also slightly less patronizing, more empowering. Um, I don't know how familiar you've been with the decade of PSYOPs, Stratcom's programming, which can tend to think that, you know, the audience we're working with in international development are less sophisticated, that they're going to be easier to change. And so we don't really take into consideration the kind of like complexity of human behavior. Anyway, so I kind of started looking into that and getting a bit curious. My background was social sciences. So that's where I kind of like started naturally looking into, looking a lot into social norm theories, looking into ethnographic approaches to better understand human behavior. And it was super fascinating. And then somehow, then I started getting into a bit more like the psychology and read a few books about behavioral economics. And then realized that basically we had all of those really incredible tools, theories, frameworks that were available and that somehow stayed on the bookshelves of libraries in the West. We somehow thought that those tools to understand human behavior were kind of like too sophisticated for audiences in Afghanistan. And so, yeah, when we were trying to change people's behavior, I think we very much, as a sector, not only us, but like using much more of our instincts rather than science. And so we decided that we wanted to set up an organization that was dedicated to applying social and behavioral change theories, frameworks, tools in real life, messy, complex environment, right? Just trying to understand that human behavior is complex everywhere, not only in the West. Absolutely. And building on that, Clemence, I know that one of the issues that you're passionate about in your work is gender equality and particularly how established social norms around gender affect an array of issues like war, climate change, food security. I mean, talk to me a little about that and how particularly behavioral science plays a role here. I've always defined myself as a feminist, but also when I started looking at countering violent extremism, looking at improving resilience to climate change, looking at building more stable democracies, gender just ended up being one of the behavioral determinants we would identify every single time as being one of the issues to address to be able to change behaviors on the long term on some of those very important issues. And what I do find quite terrifying, actually, is that something we've been working on for a long time. It's something on which we've made a huge lot of progress, obviously, which have also allowed, allowed people like me, women, to set up businesses. But we're also seeing, obviously, right now with what's happening in the U.S., with the Taliban coming back to Afghanistan, that it's also extremely precarious. And so something that we need to find new ways of working with. But I think a few, a few of the interesting things from a behavioral science perspective that we started to look at was, first of all, how do we engage men in the conversation, right? So I thought what was very useful when we started working on gender from a behavioral science perspective is that we had to frame a behavioral challenge. And most of the gender issue are not an issue with women's behavior. And so when you start framing an issue around intimate partner violence or gender-based violence, it's literally, it's not about women. It's about men, most of the time, behaving in a violent manner. And so really trying in development program to look at, obviously, yes, of course, we want to be empowering women, but we need to work with men so that they shift their own behavior. And there were so many programs, honestly, where it's like, 
we would be contacted to do behavior change on gender-based violence and be like, and the client or partners would be, oh, well, we need to do awareness sessions with women to, you know, increase their knowledge of their rights. And fine, absolutely. I mean, that's necessary, but that doesn't change behavior. That's not going to prevent their husband to behave uh, the way they do at home. And so then, you know, it opened up a whole door around how do we look at engaging men into this, which are, including in the West, not really interested in gender issues, usually because they think it's a woman's issue and they don't really see the problems. So we've been looking at like different things, right? How do we kind of like use, for instance, like nudges to get men to attend discussions around those issues? How do we frame the discussions in a way that makes sense for them? How does gender dynamic work in very collectivist society? Can we frame it in terms of financial impact? Can we frame it in ways that make men see their benefits and not frame them as the aggressors? We've also been looking at social norm theories. How can we do value-based deliberation? How can we bring people together to have dialogues, right? And then see what issues emerge, but kind of like guiding them through trying to discuss more and more about those issues without being confrontational. And while going with the grain of culture as well, because I think it's been one of the main challenges in terms of applying gender theories from the, that have very much been conceptualized by the West, even if obviously you have a lot of thinkers that are from diverse backgrounds, but very much conceptualized in Western universities, in Western academia. How do we translate that into places where people do not want to have a gender transformative approaches because we're not quite there yet? And that's fine. And if we're trying to impose that right away, then we just create more resistance and backlash. So how do we work with that? I think has been one of the key yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. I'm, I'm interested in your problem-solving methodology. So, like, how do you take the theory, if you like, the hypotheses, and then translate into a local context? I wonder whether you might try to bring to life a little more some of the work that you just touched on within the sort of an explanation, if you like, about how you go from the beginning of a client brief, if you like, to having a clarity about the behavioral intervention and then implementation plan that you'll put in place. Developed quite a systematic approach to be able to kind of like understand those issues, right? You know, what drives violence in the home and specifically gender-based violence in a country which is quite educated, quite westernized, been going through many crises and awareness levels we knew already about what was gender-based violence, right? It was like not a good thing, quotation marks, was really high. People know and don't condemn. And so we basically did a really detailed research into those behaviors. We conducted focus group discussions throughout the countries, very qualitative um, approaches. And we used a model that was just developed by a UNICEF team in the Middle East, which was looking at trying to synthesize a few different tools and frameworks from the behavioral and social science world. It's called the behavioral driver model. And it was really interesting because actually it has a big focus on trying to unpack determinants that are at the social norms and social dynamics level, which is often, I think, a layer of understanding that we are missing. Because when we do rapid surveys, etc., it's really difficult to get people to self-report on social norms. So we try to develop tools, research tools that could allow us to, you know, get people to self-reflect a bit more about this kind of like big guiding principles and why we had this cognitive dissonance between very obviously a very high knowledge about things being wrong and then still doing it. And we found quite a few interesting elements, right? And especially around compliance with gender roles on both sides. But we also find kind of like a lot of things around this fear of judgment, of being 
a bad parent, of being a bad head of family, right? And one of the key insights we found was every parent wants what is best for their family, right? And a lot of those issues stem also from this very strong desire of protection, which sounds a bit weird because then you end up heading your wife to actually protect her. But it's part of the norm, right? It's how me as a man, I can protect the honor of my family. None of those people are psychopaths, right? They're not beating people because it's find it like pleasurable. So we took that key insight. I mean, and we had much more data, probably way too much data from what we could handle, to be honest. But that key insight then kind of like allowed us to bring all stakeholders together and go through a design process together. So we sat down, we did like, I don't know, I can't really remember, I think four or five workshops with government stakeholders, with local civic society, civil society, with implementing partners, with service providers, social workers, etc. And we started designing and we're like, okay, how do we then address this issue, knowing those insights? Because one of the big barriers we had also identified was this big barrier of judgment, right, of parents who use violence to discipline their children are bad parents or, you know, husbands who yell at their wives are bad husbands. And by managing to remove that layer of judgment, understanding the need for protection, we're like, okay, maybe then we can find alternative solutions so that people can still achieve what they're trying to do with violence but with other tools. And so we started looking at identifying positive deviant in the communities, people that like strategies that were already existing within the communities we're trying to work with. And we developed a whole platform called Kudwa, which means a role model in Arabic, where people could just really start becoming role models or like looking for role models. And we did that in parallel to a lot of community deliberation, where we'd bring people together around, you know, topics like how to actually do child behavior management. And then we could actually then inject more discussions around self-reflecting on some of those gender norms and why would people react in a certain way? Parents' reactions started shifting quite a lot. And instead of being like passive recipient of kind of like awareness session, they actually started engaging and, and finding their own solutions. And then we accompanied, we did like a lot of different things. We also worked on a big kind of like edutainment piece where we did a, a soap opera that was really kind of like reflecting the daily life and daily like struggles and joys of a very standard Lebanese family, which, you know, Lebanon used to be a great place for film production. And in recent years, it has become way less of that. And so people also don't have that relationship to their media, to seeing themselves presented on TV, to seeing that they're not the only ones struggling. And that really opened up a lot of discussions while we're doing this work at the community level. And so we're seeing a massive shift. And I think it was quite interesting because then we also gave all of the strategy, we gave toolkits to all of the implementing partners, to the government who actually endorsed the whole package. And we've seen over like 600 activities being implemented in the past few years by people just taking on the platform and this kind of like this, this variety of tools inspired from behavioral sciences. And trying to implement them in their communities. And not everyone is implementing them in the same way. There are a bit of like variances and there are some things that are working better in some communities than others, but people are actually owning those tools and we're seeing a change in the approach and we're seeing, you know, parents also now like self-reporting on issues that where they were not reporting on before. People like just like talking about some of those issues, having conversation and changing social norms will take, I mean, obviously like a long, long time and a lot of things can set it back. But it's been a really interesting thing. 
Firstly, let me just say thanks for providing all that detail from the A to Z of that story, because it's really useful actually just to have that on record and to share that with our listeners to really understand in some depth what you were doing there. But of course, alongside these sorts of successes, I'm also interested in when things go wrong and the mistakes and the learning. And I'm interested, you know, as you guys grow, how have you changed your approach over time? What are you doing better now? And perhaps you can wrap that answer into some advice that you might pass on to other practitioners or would-be practitioners in the behavioural science field? What doesn't work well? It's uh, a lot. A lot of things don't work well, actually. And I think we pride ourselves on trying and then learning from what doesn't work. I think, yeah, what has changed as an organisation is actually quite interesting. I think we used to want for things to be perfect in terms of our strategies and approaches because we didn't want things to fail. We wanted things to work out. And I think as we grow and as we've been growing, we have become much more comfortable with the idea that it's better to try imperfect solutions and to see what works and what doesn't work. And also to come to terms with the fact that not everyone is going to become a behavioral science expert and we're not experts on every single tool of the toolkit of behavioral science either. But that if we can get people to start thinking about how to influence behavior and remove that layer of judgment, then they actually can implement We've seen people then implementing sometimes fairly imperfect interventions and, you know, they're not really exactly using the toolkit all the time as we envisioned it. But it's fine. It's shifting things, maybe not as fast as we were thinking, maybe not in the exact same way as we were thinking. But I think as we've grown, we're learning more and more to kind of like let go of the perfection of theories and models, because actually we know that when we're trying to apply them, it doesn't work. And then we're also trying to find ways to really accept failures, because there's a lot of talks about accepting failures and things not working, but at the same time, still difficult and people don't want to spend much money. But like, okay, on gender norms, we don't really know what works. So we might as well just keep on trying and at least we're narrowing down what's not working. And I think that's a fairly good investment of money, especially if we're managing to like learn about it. And I think then the other thing we've changed and that I, th- I think I'd love to see more in amongst practitioners is looking at doing much more implementation evaluation. So instead of being focused on impact, which of course we are, but impact in the world of behavior change takes at best of case a generation because we're not reinventing the wheel in a lot of our programs, you know, we're trying to understand what works, what doesn't. How can do we apply a great program that was run in the UK to a place like Mali, you know, to try to see. I don't know, I was thinking recently actually about this great London campaign around bystander and approaches to GBV. Actually, I don't know if you've seen it. Anyway, so like it was a great way of like promoting self-reflection. And, and I was like, oh, could we maybe try to like, you know, do something similar in other places? But what's interesting is how do we document efficiently what has worked and not worked within an intervention as well? Because I think very often we we tend to be like oh well this is not working or this has completely failed but usually it's not because the idea is completely bad it's because it's not been operationalized in a way that was working for that specific context and so how can we learn from that and how can we be better at documenting and sharing we were implementing a large-scale program in, in Tunisia during the pandemic, big contextual challenge. And the program, we decided we were trying to look at another thing around parenting, actually. But we took that program that had worked really well in other settings, and then we, we looked at adapting it. And the idea was to do peer parenting group as a complement specifically to with mothers so that they could learn from each other. It's more sustainable. But the operation didn't work at all because what we didn't quite realize that Tunisian rural society, it's just not the same settings. And so mothers actually 
spend very little time together because they work in the fields, because everything is far, there's not much transportation. And so we try to like shift it toward men, basically, because actually there's really high rates of unemployment and fathers were spending a lot of time in cafes and barbershops together and that worked much better. And I think we, just, we need to be better at documenting this and sharing with people within that because we're all adapting the same programs and making them better. Yeah, there's so much there and we could really dive further into this particular discussion. I think in summary, I'd say, you know, start imperfectly, experiment in a step-by-step manner. Don't bite off more than you can chew. Don't try and scale up too quickly. Document step-by-step and collect those learnings as you go into other projects. And then also, I think, you know, think outside of your category, as you touched on, where can you pick up learnings from other categories, industries, contexts, which may be replicable where you are. And I think that all of that is very relevant learning. I'm conscious of time, but there is one other question I do want to ask you, which occurred to me as you were talking, and it's about, I think, the particular challenges of applying behavioral science to development goals versus solving what I might call more conventional prosaic business problems, like how do I sell more of something? And I wonder whether you find unintended consequences of interventions challenge. Like, you know, how do you tackle or maybe just anticipate these, particularly in environments where you're not embedded in local customs and routines? Yeah, it's an excellent question, which goes also hand in hand with ethical questions around changing behaviours or looking at changing behaviours in societies where we're not from and where we're not part of the political ecosystem. And intended consequences is something we try to keep an eye out for constantly. I mean, as part of as development practitioners, we've got like very strong safeguarding policies and processes that we try to go through to really ensure that we think through everything. There are some fairly standard ones that you know, are always a bit of a risk in what we're doing. When we're looking at, you know, doing women empowerment programming, we know sometimes it actually increases risk for women because frustrations, because men feel left aside. So how do we engage them? How do we make them part of the process? Another big one of unintended consequences is also all of the work we do around, I think, reinforcing or strengthening the social contracts. So we look a lot at you know, linking people with service providers, whether, for instance, when we're like women victims of GBV, how do they access justice? How do they access care? And what we're finding as well is that if we work in a silo without working with policymakers, without working with institutions, with people who are training the police, then we're going to be creating expectations that there's support on the other side where sometimes there's not or not good enough. And this can have major backlash in terms of setting back trust. So, yeah, I think it's complex and it's really making sure that we, I think that this issue of silo, it's like behavioral science and behavioral change as a practice, it has to be cross-cutting. And we have to have this ability to zoom in and out, right? To like focus on a very specific behavior, but then understand the whole ecosystem. And intended consequences usually lie in the fact that institutions might not be as strong as it should be in a lot of the context we're working in. And trust is low. And if we do it slightly the wrong way, then we can contribute to less trust and so more stabilization issues, more conflict. So yeah, those are actually absolutely very real, important questions. Something actually you said to me off air that intrigued me was that you know, people still struggle with what constitutes a behavior, which of course then impacts your ability to design interventions and implement them effectively. I mean, where lies this confusion and how, how do you solve for that? 
I think the challenge is that basically social and behavior change has become this kind of like buzzword in the development sector over the past five years. We've probably, I'm hoping in a way we've contributed to that. But I think the backlash that people think it's a bit of a, of a silver bullet and don't really understand the need to prioritize. And that's also because a lot of the institutions we work with, they're just not that familiar, or at least they're getting better, but they've not been really trained on what does that mean to think with a behavioral science lens on. And so they've got those big issues and they're like, oh, we want to, you know, reduce gender-based violence. And I was like, okay, cool. But that's a very large brief. Like what type of violence? Committed by whom? How do we formulate it in, in one very specific sentence? When we talk about parenting, I mean, goodness me, to like formulate a behavior around parenting, it's a complete nightmare. There's so many. It's like, do you want people to read regularly to their children? Do we want them to, you know, feed them five vegetables a day? But then the issue that when you start breaking it down, they feel like, oh my God, there's so much work. No, but we want something that can tackle all of it, but it's not, it doesn't work. We need to try small behavior at a time and find those kind of like catalytic behaviors. So I think that's the main issue that people, I mean, we're dealing with such major challenges that people want to find solutions that are really holistic. But for behavioral science to be effective, we need to really break down the issue, I think. Absolutely. And I think when we're identifying that behavior that we want to change, we need to be uncomfortably specific about it. There's always opportunity to drill deeper that the challenge is remaining too generic. We must wrap up now, but I'm just going to ask you as a very last question. Have you got any particular requests from this community? And of course, where can we find you? Yes, I would love to see more discussions, more learning, I think, between academia in the West still and practitioners in our field. We've been trying and it's getting there, but I think there's still a huge lot that can be done. And then being better able to, yeah, accept those failures. And then where can we find me? You can find us on our website, magentaconsulting.org. You can find us in our offices in Amman, in Tunis, in Islamabad. And yeah, you can also find me on LinkedIn and drop me a line and I'd be happy to uh, continue exploring some of those topics. Fantastic. And with that, Clemence, let me thank you enormously for joining me today. I've become increasingly fascinated in how we take BS from the lab to the field. And I think when I think about the sorts of complex critical problems that you're trying to solve, it's clear that standard models won't always work and a psychological, more creative lens matters to really get to the heart of the matter, to tell the stories which change behavior and society for the better. And you've helped me shine a very valuable light on this today. So thank you very much, Clemence. Thank you so much, Daniel. It was a pleasure. I think this was a really valuable episode in our BE Work series as we got into the details, the nitty gritty of solving problems in the field. What does it look like changing long held gender behaviours in remote parts of the world where infrastructure, resources, and geopolitics may be unstable? I thought Clemence brought this to life beautifully. Which is a neat segue into next week's show when I welcome Zeyna Afif, Reynos Vakis, and Anna Maria Munoz Boudet from the World Bank's Poverty and Equity Global Practices Mind, Behaviour and Development Unit, otherwise known as EMBED, which uses behavioural science to fight global poverty and inequality. Like today, this team is working on some of the most important social development projects on the planet, so do tune in for that. And last but not least, if you have an interest in how behavioural science is applied in real life, if you enjoyed today's chat with Clemence and you think others would enjoy listening to these conversations too, then please share the podcast with friends and on social media and give me a five-star review wherever you listen. Your support is what makes us tick. 
Thank you, all the very best, and see you next time.